you would please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 7, excuse me, verses uh, 37 to 39, and um, I want to preach all four of these verses, or three of these verses. That's my intention, but we'll see. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. Here, Jesus, we, we have the, the, the setting, verse 37. We have a condition, and then we have a promise. And 39 is an explanation that is just uh, filled with uh, theology. But the substance of the passage, of course, is this qualification and promise. Look at the qualification first before we set this all up. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone is thirsty. And remember who Jesus is preaching to. He is preaching to a hostile crowd. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the high priests, all of the Levites, all of the uh, religious hypocrites, uh, all of the people who were faithful Jews, maybe many ignorant Jews, some Gentiles interspread. And he says to all of them, he, he doesn't limit it to a particular class. Jesus doesn't say, scribes, Pharisees, priests, I'm not talking to you. Those of you who want to apprehend me, I'm not speaking to you. He says to them, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he gives a promise. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, flow rivers of living water. So we see that Jesus openly offers the gospel. There is always this free offer of the gospel. So if you're here, here, sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian, that offer always stands, as long as you're alive. Of course now, as we've noted repeatedly that, um, maybe Jesus said this in the previous section that we were looking at. He said to them, you will seek me and not find me. So there is a time when God can no longer be found by an individual. But if an individual thirsts, Jesus says, come and drink. Believe in me, and you will be saved. So, that's the substance of this section here. That, that, that's really the substance of it. But now the context. Look at verse 37. On the last day, 
The great day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, and remember what the people would do is they would make these booths and live in these booths for seven or eight days. And this was a reminder, living in these booths to them was a a reminder of God's provision and protection for them in the wilderness. So they would leave their houses and dwell in these booths for seven days. Now, if you go to Brooklyn and other places in New York City, the Hasidic Jews do the same thing. They set up these booths even today. And they're made out of uh, just uh, plywood. You know, there's no insulation. There's no, nothing like that. It's very basic. And they, uh, they live inside of these things right, for seven to ten days. They, they continue to, to do this. And it was to note God's provision and protection. Now, the last day of the feast was considered the great day of the feast. Why was this so? Well, there were many rituals and customs that they would practice, which some are extra biblical. They just kind of added them uh, to their, their, um, their religious observance. And a lot of them had to do with water rites and water purification and pouring out of huge amounts of water. Um, And they would do this symbolically. And the the rabbis comment that the reason why they would do this was as a remembrance and a reminder that God would one day provide for his people by pouring out his spirit on them like that water was being poured out. Not only that, during this time, since this was really the last feast of their year, they would pray for the coming rains, for for rain to soak their land that was parched, dry, and arid. So there was this uh, bringing together of these Jewish customs that were extra biblical, and they all had to do with water and water rites, and water rituals. But particularly important also was that this day was what's called a, a solemn assembly, or convocation, which was basically a day off. The people on this day would only offer one sacrifice they would make one great prayer. They would sing one great hymn. They would have one great meal, and the rest of the day was just spent in leisure and relaxation. And it's on that day, on that occasion, that Jesus stands up and cries out because he wants to get everybody's attention. On the great, so you, uh, you have those the three great feasts where all the Jewish males were required to come to worship. And this is one of those occasions. And on this day, the great day, they wouldn't cut class, right? You you know, on the second or third day, they might not all be there. The first day, they might still be traveling from great distances. But on this day, everyone was there. And Jesus stands. And he cries out. Like that. (laughs) And... Of course, note here his posture and his passion. He stands. He stands openly and he cries out. This is not just a low or, or, you know, a nice, loud voice. He cries out so that everyone hears him. 
And of course, this is the posture and the passion of all of the Old Testament law. This is the way that the law was given. Consider when it was given on Mount Sinai. It was given in loud thunder and power so that the people felt threatened. And it's with that same kind of passion and power that Jesus preached to the people now. This is the same kind of, uh, this, this, this is the same posture and the same passion of the wisdom literature. When wisdom cries out in the street and lifts up her voice, and now one greater than Solomon is here, and he is teaching the people in the very temple. Now, as Malachi says, the forerunner comes and prepares the way, and the Lord suddenly comes to his temple. And he is there teaching the people. He, and as the prophets cried out also, they cry out and they, they, they yell, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. And Christ comes as the great prophet and he lifts up his voice. Jesus is one who stands and cries out. And he cries out for a response to the gospel. That's what he's crying for here. He's saying to them that anyone who is thirsty can come to him and drink. This is the gospel that Jesus is preaching is the same gospel that we have today. A gospel that's not to be hidden or whispered. It's a gospel that must be proclaimed. We must declare it and we must declare it loudly. Everyone must hear it. And those who hear it must know how to respond. You know, I thought about a good way to illustrate this, you know. You think of Jesus' boldness here, right? What, he has such, so much confidence in the message that he's preaching that in the midst of men and women who want to, uh, well, primarily men, religious leaders who want to kill him, he stands up and he preaches with, with just boldness and passion. He doesn't hide. And he calls people to himself. He doesn't just, you know, he, he could have taken a safe route and maybe just preach, Moses says in the law, or Isaiah declared, and everybody would have agreed with him. Well, yeah, that's true. Moses did say that in Isaiah. He doesn't say that. He says, come to me. Come to me. And, I th- you know, I'm thinking of a way to best illustrate this. And I think uh, the, perceived, uh, the perceived danger of this virus, and here I'm not commenting on its actual danger or lack thereof, but the perceived danger of this virus that's going around and all of the social distancing and wearing masks and all of these requirements. People are willing to take great pains and precautions to communicate to their closest friends and even to strangers the risks, right? I mean, they, people, people will go out of their way to tell you that you're putting them in danger and uh, that you're in danger and that you're putting others in danger. And again, this is not a commentary on whether it's right or wrong at this point. But this is a reality that we live in. So people will tell you, um, I can't be around you. You can't be around me. You should stop doing that. You should stop going there. Uh, Stop your entire life. Uh, You could die or kill another person. And this great fear uh, just is filling everybody. 
to some capacity. But the real danger, it's, it's a danger that they've lived in their entire life. The great danger and the great fear is entering eternity without a mediator. Let's be honest. Deal with, with, with the facts and with earnestness the way that Jesus does. Because that's what he's doing here. Jesus knew his own peril. He knew the danger that he was putting himself in by standing up and declaring the word. But more than that, he understood the peril, the danger that his audience was in. The priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people. His posture and his passion in declaring the gospel demonstrate that. he's, He's at the high point of the feast. Everybody is there and everyone is going to see him. And you may say to yourself, well, you know, I know people who have died or are dying from the virus. Yet, how forgetful we are. Let's, again, let's remember the facts. You know men and women who are vulnerable to an array of diseases and deaths. But why? Because sin has entered the world. And death through sin. Uh, Tell me, do you take the same pains and precautions to speak to them of the only cure for the true uh, disease and virus that will send them to hell? The gospel of grace. That is the true remedy. You see, all of these family members that we have and all of these people that we know who are hypersensitive and living in great fear, that's temporal. They're, they're, they're trying to protect themselves from, if they're, look, if they're Christian people, they're trying to protect themselves from a virus that'll usher them into the presence of Jesus. No, I'm not talking about being careless, but the fear and perturbation, I think that's how you say it, perturbation, it's a new word, I found out, (laughs) it's new to me, it's a real word, perturbation, I think that's how you say it, people have, due to this virus, has the same remedy also, the gospel. If you trust that Christ is, he he is the captain of your salvation, you don't have to live in fear. Now again, right, I've said it before, I'm not saying that uh, because Christ is our savior, you can go around licking doorknobs, right? That's not, (laughs) that's not my point, you know, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about living in fear, You don't have to live in any kind of fear if he is the captain of your salvation. If there, since there is a God in heaven that offered his only begotten son as an atonement for your sins, and you know that all who believe in him have the privileges of becoming children of God, then who's in heaven? Well, my heavenly father's there. And the Lord Jesus is there as the high priest. The God who numbers the hair on 
our heads or the lack thereof is our Father. He can protect us here on earth. He can keep us safe, safe, or he can call us home. The people in Jesus' day had a, had a number of issues. They had a number of fears, right? They, they were so afraid of the scribes and the Pharisees and of the religious leaders that really what they did was mumbled. They murmured and talked about him. They didn't do it openly, Right? Maybe we'll get kicked out of the synagogue and we'll starve and we'll die and who knows what else might happen to us. Maybe if he causes too much of a ruckus, the Romans might come and they might take our place and our privilege. But what does Jesus do? He offers them hope. He offers them to come to him. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And literally here, it's let him keep coming to me. Let him, let him come and continue to come to me. This is not just uh, one event. The way that Jesus states it here, of course, it's, it's continual. It's a continual coming to him. Now, why does Jesus use this particular language, this symbolic language of thirsting? Of course, it's tied to the Feast of Booths itself, and then the, more than likely, we can't be too dogmatic about it, but it's tied to the religious customs that the Jews developed around this particular feast with water. But definitely we know that it's tied to the Feast of Booths, a feast that reminded the people of God's care for them in the wilderness. And what, what was one of their major concerns when they were in the wilderness? Or, not concerns, but complaints. Was water. And what they were celebrating here was that God had provided for them, one of the things that they're celebrating, God provided water for us in the wilderness. He provided for us. He sustained us. He preserved us. He gave us life. So in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is giving a reminder Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, we read these words. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. You shall remember, here it is, verse 2, Deuteronomy 8, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why did he do it? To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Why why do you think God has brought us through this wilderness of 2020? To humble you and to test you to know what's in your heart. Now look at verse 15, same chapter. Who led you through that great, verse 15, God, of course speaking of the Lord, who led you through the, that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water. Who brought you water. Who, who brought water for you, excuse me, out of the flinty rock. God, 
brought water for them out of that flinty rock. And of course, Paul tells us that that flinty rock was a type of Christ himself. And Jesus is saying to these people here even now, he says, come to me all who are thirsty. While all of their history, and and, uh, part of what the Jews would do was they would have readings from the scriptures. And part of their readings were readings that indicated uh, that there, there was a parched and weary land. And Jesus says to them, if anybody's thirsty, if you are a parched and weary land, come to me and drink. Of course, in Numbers, you have their great complaint, Numbers 20. But then at the end of old, uh, recorded Old Testament history, or towards the end, when Nehemiah comes back into the land, they celebrate the feasts. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 19, listen to this. He says, he's uh, praying, of course, to the Lord. And he says, yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road. Nehemiah 19. To lead them on the road. Nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light. And the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them. See the, note the connection here. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So, uh, of course, the reason Jesus uses this language, it's all bound up with this particular feast and festival and, and the meaning. God provided for his people in the wilderness water. And their physical thirst, well, no, no, to add to that is this, is that physical thirst is used throughout the Bible to denote fear, guilt, shame, Pride, overall, dissatisfaction of soul, spiritual poverty, affliction. That's what thirst indicates throughout the scriptures. For example, when Peter's preaching at Pentecost, the people are pricked in their heart. And what do they say? What must we do to be saved? The Philippian jailer who is is hearing Paul and Silas worship. What do they do? What do they ask? What must we do to be saved? That's thirst. But even the believers in the Bible speak this way, of of a thirst, of a yearning, of a desire to be filled, to have their thirst quenched by God. I'm gonna give you a bunch of passages. Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63.1. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And Jesus, you think he's preaching to these people who are celebrating this great feast, but also they are under the grips of some of the worst legalism they had experienced. 
These people were, they were thirsty. The Messiah had come and he's performing all these signs and they say stuff like, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs that this man has done? But they have to whisper it. Because the religious leaders won't let them believe these, that he is the Messiah. Of course, they have their own guilt here. But we're speaking to a particular context, right? They lived in great fear of their religious leaders who are preaching works righteousness. These were men and women who were truly thirsty. And the way that Christ describes our satisfaction in the new heavens and the new earth is with this same language. Look at Revelation, or hear me read Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. And Jesus said to them, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give you the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. Revelation 22, 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and from the Lamb. All right, so the Lamb is enthroned and God is enthroned, the Father. And from their throne, this water is flowing, this crystal clear, pure water. And listen to what the Spirit says in verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Freely. Let him keep coming to me and let him keep drinking. And we're going to do that for eternity. You see, when we get to heaven... It's not like we're going to run into Jesus. And you know, we speak of heaven, but when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, when we have our resurrection bodies and we're on, a physical, on this physical planet made brand new, right? we're going to keep coming to Christ. We're going to keep believing in Christ and depending upon Christ and living for Christ and living to Christ forever. So Jesus uses this, this language of drinking, of course, because it's tied to the feast and the history of Israel, but also because it's a rich metaphor that speaks to the soul of the unbeliever and even to the soul of the believer and the satisfaction that we will have in eternity. This language of thirst, being thirsty. Now, of course, drinking is a metaphor to describe or a way of describing faith. What Jesus is calling for is faith in him. Look at verse eight. So he says, come, right, drink. He who believes in me, he who believes in me. Drinking is believing. The drinking is believing. And here's the promise, right? So there you had the qualification. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And now here's the promise. And he who believes in me, he who drinks, he who genuinely believes that I am the Christ, he who genuinely believes that I have come down from heaven, the person who believes that my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me, 
can come freely. And as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does this mean? Of course, he's using the same symbolism, right? This symbolism of water. It's tied to the feast. It's tied to our passions and desires. It's tied to their fulfillment in this life and in the world to come. But the Old Testament also is filled with prophecies that speak of, sim- of this is not my language, this is somebody I was reading, of, thirst, of the thirst-quenching thirst quenching function of water in the last days. And of course, this is a reference to the Spirit. So the, and there are uh, a ton of passages that teach this too. So we're going to look at a ton of them. In Isaiah 43, verse 19 through 21. Isaiah 43, 19 through 21. Here, here, this is something that is absolutely significant, significant for reading your Bible. And it's that you have to allow Jesus and the apostles to interpret the Bible for you. And that makes Bible reading really easy. But listen to Isaiah. Behold, this, this, is, this is future, right? Behold, I will do a new thing. Know what shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. He's not talking about supplying water to Israelites. And the reason he's not doing that is because when you read Isaiah, Isaiah continues to develop this theme. So look at chapter 58. He's speaking to his people and he says to them, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul's drought. Thirst. Right? And strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose water does not fail. What is this? Imagination. Not, not, not imagination in the sense where you're adding to the Bible. But imagination is, a, is an important part of uh, reading your Bible. 
What does that sound like? You shall be like a garden and like a spring of water. What does that sound like? Anywhere in the Bible where there's a garden with water springing up? Eden. Eden was like that, right? And that was the original temple, the original place where God walked with man. Now look at Isaiah 44.3. So what is this water that God is going to provide that's going to satisfy the soul and the thirst of his people? What is it? Well, Isaiah does tell us. Isaiah 44 verse 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. All of these references to water and refreshing are a reference to the spirit, the endowment and the gift of the spirit, which, uh, which we don't have the time to do, but if you read Galatians, the spirit was the promise given to Abraham. Dissatisfaction of soul is satisfied by continually believing in Jesus who gives us the Holy Spirit. Dissatisfaction of soul is satisfied by continually believing in Jesus who gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, for the believer, it's not, that, it's not like this continually believing in Jesus because the Spirit leaves and it's got to come back. No. But because Jesus is an infinite source of joy and communion with Him continues to fill us. Right? Anyone who comes to Jesus, who believes in Him, these scriptures are all fulfilled in Him. All of these references to the activity of the Spirit in a person's life are Fulfilled. So, all of the, all of the, so, uh, I mean, there are many passages, right? So, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Uh, uh, the love of Christ compels us. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All of these passages and many more, many more. Now more than any other gift, it is the word itself that is poured out from vessels of clay that is a means of the Spirit enlivening the people of God. So in other words, the Spirit of Christ uses the word of Christ to enliven the people of Christ. So, for example, look at, um, so, so here's, here's one that is, here's a text that is for the individual, right? For the individual. Look at Psalm uh, 119. Psalm 119 and verse, and you could look at a bunch of verses in here, right? But uh, verse 50 in particular. This is my comfort in my affliction. This is my comfort in my affliction. For your word has given me life. 
For, so for the believer, um, right, how, how today, right, so there, there in the temple, um, people could have literally walked up to Jesus and they could have said to him, um, I don't understand all that you're talking about, about being thirsty, but I think I'm thirsty like that. Can you help me? Right? They could have done that. But that's not what he meant. He didn't really mean come up to me. What he says, believe in me. But we live, you know, 2,000 years separated from, from Christ, you know? So uh, how do we come to him? His word. His word continues to be a source of life. And believing his word, coming to his word, and continuing to drink from the word, and being filled with the word, and that is what the spirit uses to invigorate, to empower, and to strengthen the people of God. Yes, at home, alone by yourself, but corporately also, gathered together to hear it prayed, and sung, and preached to gather with God's people to hear it. Look at Ephesians. Here's this corporate dynamic. Right? In Ephesians, you have the, the, the corporate dynamic. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine. Look at the connection here. This is an important connection, right? Because this, what this text has to do with is, is not drinking. It's not, the point of this passage is not alcohol or not having alcohol. The point of this text is what controls you? Right? What exercises control over you? So he says, don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, it's waste, is wasteful, but be filled with the Spirit. So when you gather with God's people, right, um, it shouldn't be, you know, six packs and whiskey is not what's going to make you merry and joyful. It's the Spirit that will. It doesn't matter how good the wine is. It's the, the Spirit that uh, we ought to be filled with. Why? You, you ever think about this, right? You know, let's let's be honest. We're all adults here. I'm guessing most of us have had a drink before, and you're with your friends. What do you start doing most of the time? Singing and making a ruckus, and you know, right? Dancing around. If you're not drunk out of your mind, I mean, you know, just you had a few drinks. You start singing, celebrating, right? But Paul says that that's that's not to be compared. That 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 is uh, uh, being drunk in particular, is dissipation, it's wasteful. What you ought to be filled with is the spirit of the living God. How, how do you do that? How do I become filled with the spirit? Well, Jesus tells me in John, come to me and drink, believe in me. If you believe in me, waters will flow out of your inmost part, living water, the spirit will flow from the believer. And you know how does he flow in this way? Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. That's how you do it. This is one of the ways that it's done 
corporately when the people of God gather together. And this is a great need that the people of God have. Uh, so again, right, we're living in an age where people think, well, I'll tune in. I, you know, my church, I can tune in live. That's not the same. And then, you know, uh, I've benefited greatly from stale sermons, right? Two-week-old, one-week-old sermons. I've benefited greatly. Uh, some 50-year-old sermons, right, or older, recorded. Benefited greatly, but it's not the same as gathering with God's people and worshiping God. So Christ, he call, what does he call them to? He calls them to believe in him. And they will find satisfaction of soul by continuing to believe in Christ who gives the spirit. And the outworking of that, this, this water flowing out of their hearts, literally it's out of their belly, this water will flow. And uh, it means out of their innermost being. Out of their innermost being, this water will flow. And what does it look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, speaking the word of Christ to one another, speaking the truth in love, this overflow of the Spirit. The word of God poured out from vessels of clay. Now, see, I'm going to finish. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Of course, this supports what, um, the interpretation, right, that I just gave. These Old Testament passages referencing the Holy Spirit. John here is interpreting Jesus' saying. He's telling them, you know, and, and you have to ask the question, well, why... Why would it be important for John to do this? Well, John is writing to a primary Gentile audience who would not have understood the Feast of Booths. They wouldn't have understood it. So he's adding some context. Whom those believing in Jesus would receive, that's future, for the Spirit was not yet given right, at that time because Jesus was not glorified. So let's work backwards, right? The reason the Spirit had not been given is because Jesus wasn't glorified. So you could, you could say this, Jesus had to be glorified so that the Spirit could be given in this way. In the way, uh, and I don't mean the uh, full context, but in the way that John is describing in verse 39. Jesus had to be glorified for that to happen. And I think, so... Uh, I'll, I'll kind of summarize it and then I'll develop as much as I can. But I think it's pretty straightforward. The meaning is that the age of the Spirit had not yet come. The Spirit was not yet at work in a way that it would later be because Christ had not returned to the Father yet. What does he say to them uh, right before this? He says, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. And when he's speaking to his disciples, later on in the Gospel of John, what does he say to them? It's your benefit that I go to be with my Father. Because if I don't go, I can't send the Comforter. 
But what what you know what is all this? He had to be glorified first. He had to be glorified, or he had to be lifted up. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die so that we might receive the gift of the Spirit. Uh, Look at it. It's most clearly here. To compress a... You know what? I'm not going to compress it. How about we pray and and we'll come back to verse 39 next week. Let's do that. Okay. Let's... uh, So, to summarize, Jesus uh, declares to the people that if they're spiritually thirsty, if they have a desire to come to him, it doesn't matter where they are, they can come to Jesus, they can believe in him, and he will satisfy their soul's thirst. How does he do it? By giving them his spirit, by continually feeding them spiritually. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for this time in your word. And we ask, Lord God, that you would, that you would uh, increase our thirst for you, Lord. May our souls thirst and may they find refreshment in Christ. Amen.